We got a crazy title tonight, and I think you'll see why. But our text is going to be Revelation chapter 3. So if you'd like to open to Revelation 3, we'll look at verses 14 through 22. Now, whenever you study Bible prophecy, there are two places you absolutely, amongst the many in Scripture, will have to pay attention to. One we're going to mention up front. The other we'll study at least a portion of it in detail through our text. And the other being the Olivet Discourse, Jesus teaching four of his disciples in response to their question that we'll examine in a moment. Now, we call it the Olivet Discourse because it was taught on the Mount of Olive. It's a point of identification to location, but we also need to remember this is the same point as we studied last week where Jesus is going to return to the earth. Now, if the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem have nothing to do with the nation of Israel and Jerusalem in the Bible, why in the world would Jesus come back to the Mount of Olives, split it wide in two, create a 35-mile wide valley, and liven the Dead Sea and the other uh, portion of the water that flows from the split uh, Mount of Olives flow into the Mediterranean? Jesus is coming again. And we're not uh, going to be um, left to experience the tribulation. <clears throat> We're going to be caught up in a moment and twinkling of an eye. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm still warming up. I've been in my office all day. I haven't talked to anybody except Terry a couple times. So my voice is, I've got morning voice at 7 p.m., if you can imagine that. So the question asked by Peter, Andrew, James, and John, the two sets of fishermen brothers, uh, of Jesus that led to the Olivet Discourse is in Matthew 24, 1-3, where Jesus went out, departed from the temple. His disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple, and Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on what? The Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? Their question related to what he just shared. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, the first thing we need to take note of is Jesus never answered the first question. When are these things going to happen? When are the walls around the temple going to be disassembled? When is the temple going to be disassembled itself? And Jesus never answered about the timing of the destruction of the temple because it has nothing to do with the other two questions, and that is the signs of the last days. That happened in 70 AD. It was not a sign related to his coming for the church or his second coming. Now, what Jesus did say is that world events are going to march forward in a birth pang-like progression, much like Paul described in 2 Timothy 3.13, where he said, evil men and imposters will grow what? Worse. worse and worse. There's a digression presented there. Deceiving and being deceived. Now, Jesus also pointed out in Matthew 24.12, in the Olivet Discourse, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will do what? Grow cold. There's another digression presented. Now, the Greek word translated as abound means to increase by multiplication. In other words, these things are going to increase exponentially during the last days, the closer we get to the rapture, tribulation, and the following millennium. In other words, like birth pangs, things are going to get increasingly intense and more frequent as the day the Lord comes for the church draws near evil growing more and more 
uh, disgusting and vile. Is that happening today? The love of many growing cold because of the increasing lawlessness all around. Now, we also know that Jesus identified specific things that are going to progress in a labor pain-like fashion leading up to the rapture and the rest of the progression we mentioned a moment ago. And he covered this in what I like to call the preamble to the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, 4-8, where Jesus answered the four inquiring disciples saying this, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are what? The beginning of sorrows. Now the word sorrows is translated in 1 Thessalonians 5.3 as labor pains. The word beginning means the commencement or commencement of or the initiation of. And Jesus said these things are the commencement of the birth pains that will suddenly begin to increase in frequency and intensity during the time of the signs, which we, I believe, are living in and even at the end of right now. Amen. Now, our focus tonight is going to be on one of the things Jesus said is going to increase in frequency and intensity in the last days, and that is pestilence. Now, I know where your mind's going, COVID and all that other stuff, but that's not where we're going. So stick with me. Amen? Amen. Now, and the word actually means, pestilence means disease or plague. It's used in two places in the New Testament. One in the Olivet Discourse and the second in the book of Acts. It's used in Acts 24, 5, where it's said of Paul by his accusers, we have found this man a what? A plague. Same word translated as pestilence in the Olivet Discourse. A creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Jesus was known as the Nazarene. Now, the Acts usage is important because it broadens the meaning of pestilence or plague beyond the pandemic or health-related sense and opens it to being used as a word to describe a plague in a spiritual sense, which is what it was used of concerning Paul in Acts 24. Now, the Bible predicts there's going to be a plague within the church in the last days that sweeps through it in the same type of progression as the other signs that he is coming soon. The same birth pang-like manner. It will grow worse and worse and worse until the church arrives at the state we'll see in a few moments. Now, it's part of the time of the signs. And it was actually the first thing Jesus said in response to the disciples' inquiry. False Christ and those who use his name for things that are not of him are going to be abound. Many will come in his name and do all these things and lead people astray. But uh, the Lord warned them not to be deceived, and we are not to be deceived by false messengers today. Amen? Now, Jesus said in his uh, monumental teaching known as the Sermon on the Mount in 513 of Matthew, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for what? Nothing. Nothing. But to be thrown out and trampled 
underfoot by men. Now, Jesus said we are the only source of salt and light that this world has. He didn't say you are one of the salts of the earth. And he didn't say previously that we are one of the lights of the world. And what he is saying is that through those symbols is that the church is the only preserving and purifying influence that the world has. There is no other. You are the salt of the earth. And we indeed cannot get trampled underfoot by men, and yet we're seeing that happen all around us today, and tonight we'll find out why. Now, Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2-3 that there would be a great falling away. There would be a defection from truth in the last days. 2 Timothy 4-3, Paul said that a time would come when people in the church would not put up with sound doctrine, but that they would prefer fables over biblical facts. Now, these are the causes of the church losing its preserving and purifying influence in the last days and thus being trampled underfoot by men or being ruled and dominated by culture. Is that happening today? Yes. Absolutely. Now, since this is a plague or disease related directly to the last days and all diseases have causes, our three points this evening are going to be pathogens, things that cause diseases that lead up to this as our title. And it's, uh, as I said, it's a bit different for us. Tonight we're going to talk about the church killers. The church killers is our title. Things that kill the church's preserving and purifying influence. Now, we know the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The church is going to prevail in the end. We are going to be snatched off this giant dirt clot in a moment in a twinkling of an eye, maybe even tonight. Yes, let's go. Amen. Why not? I mean, that's the reaction I get. Maybe even tonight. Today's a good candidate, right? Tomorrow's a good candidate. It could happen tonight. Now, one more thing before we get to our text, which we'll get to in a half hour or so. <clears throat> the Olivet Discourse we made mention of, the preamble to it, we looked at and read in its entirety. Now, the other thing I want to make mention of is that there are letters to seven churches in Asia Minor that are written to literal churches in the first century. There are also lessons to every church in every age of church history. Now, I personally believe that they are also representative of a chronology of church history from beginning to end. Now, there are some Bible teachers who would disagree with that. Some of my personal friends don't believe that. Now, I will say I believe that for two reasons. One, internal evidence, which we're going to examine tonight. And the other reason I believe that is the third book of the full unveiling of Jesus Christ, the Apocalypsis or the book of Revelation. The third verse of that book in Revelation 1-3 says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this what? Prophecy. Historical document? Is that what it says? Prophecy. The words of this what? Prophecy. Prophecy. And keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now the Greek word uh, translated as keep is tereo, and it means to guard from loss or injury. In other words, leave it alone. Keep it intact, protect it, guard it in the sense of it, including in the sense of it being a prophecy. Now, let's quote all the verses in Revelation that tell us chapters 2 and 3 are not prophetic. Go. You done? So am I. There aren't any. 
There's nothing in Revelation that says chapters 2 and 3 are not prophetic. And therefore, we'll just let the text speak for itself. Because the fact is, if you're going to say the content of the seven letters has nothing to do with the rest of the church in a letter that's introduced as being prophecy, then you have to apply that same interpretive principle to First and Second Thessalonians, Second Peter, Second Timothy, and say it only applies to the audience that directly was written to or received that particular letter. Now, believing this is a chronological record of church history, I could be wrong, but I'm glad that I'm not. <laughs> but listen, here's the most important thing. What I know for sure, and like I said, I have good friends who don't see it this way, is that no one's interpretation of the seven letters is what their salvation is based on. Amen. So we're just going to look at this as part of the prophecy that was given to John the Beloved and the letters sent to seven churches in Asia Minor. What we know for sure is that in the last days there's a plague that kills the churches, preserving and purifying influence, and it begins to become trampled underfoot by culture. Yet there is a remnant that remains faithful. Amen. And some of them go to CCT and are here tonight. Amen. Amen? Now, a pathogen, in the medical sense, is any organism that can produce disease. Listen to this. A pathogen can also be described or referred to as an infectious agent or simply a germ. I don't think anybody would deny that there are infectious agents who have made their way into the church of the last days. So let's have a look at the last letter of the seven that I believe predicts and parallels the last age of church history. Would you stand and read with me, please, from Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. Revelation 3, 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot, I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord, that's our prayer tonight, that your Spirit would speak to us and quicken our hearts and minds to receive uh, that which we're going to look at from your Word and just read as well. We ask God your help in this, and we look forward uh, to you speaking to our hearts and giving us a greater passion for a lost and dying world and a sense of urgency because of the shortness of time. Accomplish those things tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the first thing I want to mention is that any time I teach on the subject of the last days, without fail, somebody writes to me and says, the Bible says there's going to be a great revival before Jesus comes. Where? 
Where does it say that? It doesn't say that anywhere. That doesn't mean we shouldn't pray for it. It doesn't mean we shouldn't hope for it. But we should be saying the Bible says when the Bible says nothing of the kind. Because the Bible does not say that. As a matter of fact, the Bible says it's going to be as it was in the days of Noah, where the righteous are relatively few in number in comparison to the global population. The Bible says that people are going to be indifferent to the signs that judgment is coming, just like with Noah, when he was building an ark for 120 years on dry land on a planet where it had never, ever rained. Now, I don't know. I'd be thinking something was up. When a guy's building a huge boat away from the, uh, the ocean, and he is described as a preacher of righteousness as well. Now, we also know that evil men and imposters are going to grow worse and worse. Lawlessness is going to abound. The love of many is going to grow cold. Does that sound like revival? It sounds like an age that needs revival. But what it really needs is a great awakening. Now, what will the church look like right before the end of the church age? The answer is the church of the Laodiceans. Now, the Holy Spirit is very careful in how that address is packaged because it's distinct from the other six letters. The first letter, it, it's addressed to the church of Ephesus. The other five letters are addressed to the church in the named city, in Smyrna, in Pergamos, in Thyatira, in uh, Sardis, in Philadelphia. And then we come to the church of the Laodiceans. Now it's interesting because the word Laodicea, it's a compound Greek word that means the people rule. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that in the last days, the people are going to rule the church. They're going to have itching ears, and they'll want to hear fables like Paul wrote about in 2 Timothy 4, 3-4. And this, I believe, parallels with the age that comes when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because their ears itch and they want them tickled, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the what? Truth. And be turned aside to fables. Now, a time will come when the majority of people inside the quote-unquote church will demand through their attendance what kind of messages they'll put up with. And ones that tickle their ears or make them feel good are going to be their choice. And I submit to you tonight, that day is here. And it's been here for some time. Now, let me just say, there are things that we're not going to cover tonight that relate to the city of Laodicea, its history and geographic location that we would normally mention in an exegetical study of Revelation, but we're uh, kind of doing a topical series here tonight, moving through the last day's progression. Now, what Jesus says to a literal church that represents, I believe, the last stage of church history, he says, I know your works. He says, you are neither cold nor hot. He said, I wish you were one or the other because you are in a lukewarm state that causes me to vomit you out of my mouth. Now, there's nothing like a good drink of lukewarm water on a hot day. Right? Cold water and hot water at least have some kind of influence. Lukewarm water is putrid uh, no matter what the weather is like. And Jesus says that's your state, that's your condition. He defines their lukewarmness as claiming to be rich. I don't think it would be 
a stretch or an imposition on Scripture to say they were naming and claiming to be rich. You see what I did there? Okay, just, just making sure. And they don't need his help, which is what's implied. We, are, we have need of nothing. And he says, yet you don't even know that your actual spiritual condition is wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, this identifies the first pathogen that will be a predominant church killer in the last days, killing or preserving and purifying influence. And here it is. Listen, in the last days, the church will be focusing on self instead of fighting to save souls. In the last days, the church will be focusing on self instead of fighting to save souls. Is that going on today? Some of the biggest churches in the world, including in our country, are self-centered personal wellness and wealth accumulation centers. That is what their messages are centered around. Why? Because that's what people want to hear. How I can be happy. How I can be healthy. How I can be wealthy. Now, it is interesting, and a little bit of history about Laodicea, the city, a Roman colony, had actually suffered a great, a huge earthquake in 60 AD. And Rome, because it was a colony, offered to finance the rebuilding of the city, and the city said, no thanks, we don't need your money, we're wealthy enough, because of the ISAB and other things that they were known for, and they were financially stable. And Jesus plays off of this, and he says, listen, church at Laodicea, or church of the Laodiceans, you're just like the city you're in. You haven't had a preserving, you haven't had a purifying influence on the city, you're just like them. You're wealth-centered and spiritually lukewarm. Now, Paul said this in 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5. Let me remind you, there is a faithful remnant during every age of church history, right? So we're not talking about, you know, we're being good Christians talking about other people. We're not talking about us tonight, right? Now, in, the second, in 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5, we're told, know this. That in the last days, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, bolsters proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of who? God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, and from such people do what? Turn away. You know, sometimes we run down that checklist and say, man, that's the world for you. Looks just like them. This isn't about the world. This is written about the church. This is what the church is going to look like in the last days. And we know that because Paul continues to describe the situation in verses 8 and 9 where he mentions Janus and Jambres resisting Moses. So do these, these false teachers that cause this type of thinking and actions in the church. They resist the truth. They are men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the what? The faith. But they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. Now, Janus and Jambres traditionally are believed to be the two magicians who mimicked the miraculous things God did through Moses and uh, withstood him, and he, they did uh, their mimicries of the things Moses did or God did through Moses in front of Pharaoh. Now, they have interesting names. Janus means vexed. Jambres means, get this, this is kind of kooky, 
Foamy Healer. Foamy Healer. Who names their kid Foamy Healer? What kind of name is that? Well, Foamy is a word. I had to look this up because I'm thinking, what kind of application does that have? It's used to describe someone who stirs up excitement. Someone who appeals to emotions and feelings. They're foamy or they're bubbly. We might even say they're all show and no go. Now, these are people of corrupt minds who are disapproved concerning the faith because they resist the truth. Now, are there any foamy healers out there today? Are there people stirring up excitement and talking about all the grand things that are going to happen at their events? How about vexed? Are there any vexing people out there? The word means troublesome. Are there any people troubling us today? People within the church? Are there even lots of them? Uh -huh. yes. yes, there are. Now, note how Jesus refers to himself. He calls himself the Amen. The so be it. We might even say he calls himself the that's it. I am the end of the story. And he calls himself the true uh, witness of the beginning of cre the creation of God. And the word beginning in this context means the principal power. Jesus is proclaiming himself to be the principal power in every age. And according to Colossians 1, 15 to 17, he is the creator of all things. All things were created by, for, and through him. Nothing was made that he didn't make. And in him, verse 17 of Colossians 1 says, all things consist or are held together. Now, he says to this lukewarm church who denies his name and title by their works of declaring themselves rich and wealthy and having need of nothing. Now, today you will hear in popular churches, talk about having your best life now. And now I know we pick on that a lot, but we should. Amen. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Ephesians 5.11 mandates us as part of our duties of the Christian faith. You're going to hear in a lot of places today all the great things God has in store for you in this life, with no mention of trials and tribulations. In this life you will have tribulation. tribulation. Peter said in 1 Peter 4, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trials which are to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. You will hear, you too can learn how to do miracles. Today you can go to school to be a prophet. You can't be a prophet if God didn't call you. And he's already done the prophet and apostle thing, as we've talked about uh, before. Listen, you will be told by some today. Now, I want you to pay attention to this. You can bind Satan. The Bible says he roams the earth like a roaring lion. So how are you going to bind him if the Bible says he's loose and seeking those whom he may devour? On and on these types of things go. And uh, listen, friends, we need to be careful about what we allow into our minds. Listen, the binding and loosing that Jesus was talking about, those are legal terms. He's saying, you two agree on earth on anything, heaven's going to be behind you because you have my spirit. You agree to forgive anybody, that person's going to be forgiven. Heaven's going to be behind you. You bind anyone, make them obligatory to the consequences of their actions, and heaven will endorse that. You say, you know what, I'm going to set this matter aside as we talked about Sunday. Heaven's going to endorse that because we are filled with the Spirit of God. Amen? Amen. Now, John says in 1 John 2, 15 to 17, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the what? The world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Now, life is meant to be enjoyed. God has created a wonderful world. It's beautiful. And there are awesome things for us to examine and great cause and reason for awe and wonder. But the church of the last days will define the best life of having everything the world has to offer instead of expecting the next life to be the best life. Now, as I said, I could be wrong about the prophetic aspect of the seven letters, but I think the evidence is growing in my favor. Now, here's the second infectious agent prominent in the last stage of church history, and that is twisting the Word of God instead of trusting it. Twisting the Word of God instead of trusting it. Is that rampant today? Yes. Absolutely. Jesus describes their lukewarmness as claiming to be one thing, yet in reality, reality being exactly the opposite of it. Claiming to be rich, but actually being wretched and miserable. Claiming wealth, yet being poor. Claiming to have no needs, yet being blind and naked and in desperation or desperate need of his touch. Now, I read a uh, article in Smithsonian Magazine about what's called masquerade bacteria. And it's bacteria that infiltrates your immune system in the form of red blood cells to evade your normal defenses. They look like other cells, they act like other cells outwardly, but they are actually pathogens that creep in and sound and look, or they don't sound, but they look like, uh, well, of course, maybe they do have sound. I don't know. I've never been a pathogen. I've never been. <laughs> but they're actually not what they appear to be. We have teachers today who use much of the same vocabulary, but have a completely different dictionary. And it's the dictionary that matters. Amen? They meet and call their meeting to church, but they do nothing that the church is supposed to do, which is what Paul said, preach the word. Now, among them are people masquerading as faith healers and prosperity teachers. Now, faith and prosperity are biblical precepts but not in the way they're presented by these masquerading messengers of light, of whom Paul wrote of in 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15. He described them as false apostles. He said they're deceitful workers, transforming themselves into sent ones, apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light, Therefore, it is of no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their, what? Works. Their works. Now, if you look at the letter written to the uh, church of the Laodiceans, Jesus' solution for their spiritual condition was himself. He said, buy from me. Obviously, a figure of speech. And this is represented what he had to offer as gold refined in the fire, that they may be truly rich. And to be clothed in righteousness, represented by white garments, to cover their shameful nakedness. And to a city famous for its eye salve, he says, you need me to open your eyes to your condition because you are in need of rebuke and chastening so that you are zealous to repent. Now, if only the Laodiceans had a book to tell them all these things. 
Well, they did. Colossians says, as a matter of fact, in 4.12-16, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in where? Laodicea. Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nephthys and the church that is in his house. Now, when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans that you likewise read the epistle from? Laodicea. Where? Laodicea. Now, some believe that the letter to the Laodiceans is actually the book of Ephesians that we are studying on Sunday, since Ephesians is absent of any of the normal personalized uh, personalizations common to a Pauline epistle like we just saw in Colossians. Now, Hebrews also reminds us in 12, 6 to 10, whom the Lord loves, he lets them do whatever they want. He does what? He chastens them. And he scourges every son whom he receives. Now, I often ask this question, and I always get left hanging. Anybody else been behind the woodshed with the Lord? Yeah, I think we've all encountered that a time or two. And listen, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us, as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of what? His holiness. So Hebrews establishes that rebuking and chastening is part of God's interaction with his children. And Jesus mentions by implication that he loves this church. He loves the, the people. He wants them to turn from their error. Now listen, there are quotations in the writings of first century Christians of the book of Hebrews, which was written 30 years before the book of Revelation. And the church today, sadly, with all the information that we do have, says hell and a loving God are two diametrically opposed concepts. Simply cannot coexist. Much of the church in these last days believes that poor health and poverty are inconsistent with the life God has ordained for you and me, as is any form of divine chastening. And yet, clearly, God has said that's part of how he makes us pursue holiness. In 3 John 1, 2, the beloved said, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your what? Soul prospers. So yes, John is praying that they be healthy and that they have their needs met. And this is used as a proof text by the health and wealth preachers. But the problem is they stop reading. And you can make the Bible almost say anything if you cut and paste and pull a word here, a verse there, start with this verse and paste that one on to the end. Well, what John wants them to prosper in, he says in 3 and 4 of the same chapter, the next two verses, For I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear my children do what? Walk in truth. Now, John wasn't saying that he prays they're rich and become wealthy to the point that they have no needs. 
He said he's praying that they would prosper in walking in truth, not twisting scripture to each, uh, itch their ears. Now, Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 14 to 18, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. Are there tough things to understand in the Bible? Are there some hard sayings in the Bible? Yes, there are. Yet, he talks about untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of what? So Peter's calling Paul's writing scriptures, by the way. You therefore, beloved, since you know this, when? Beforehand. Beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Somebody say, Amen. Amen. Now, I could be wrong, but I'm thinking that the letters in Revelation 2 and 3 are indeed prophetic of church history. I think it's getting harder and harder to prove that it's not. When you equate man-made religions with a personal relationship with the true and living God, this brings a rebuke from God and chastening if you do this as a believer. And we should be thankful for that. All of us should be thankful for that. I read an article this week about the Interfaith Movement for Human Integrity. And the heading of their website said, Every person is sacred across all borders. It's kind of a revamping of we're all God's children. Are we? No. Nope. You have to be adopted and brought back into the family through being born again to be one of God's children. They have as their mission statement, the interfaith movement for human integrity works to achieve an equitable, inclusive, and healthy society, culture, and economy where all people, including the most vulnerable, disenfranchised, and marginalized, have equal opportunities and access to the resources and tools needed to achieve a higher quality of what? Life. Of life. Now, the website also says the IM4 Human Integrity currently serves three geographic regions of California including the greater San Francisco Bay Area, as well as uh, Riverside and the greater Los Angeles metro area, which would include us. Now, this is what the woke church looks like. Not one word about Jesus. Not one word about saving souls. It's all about making life better. Now, the social justice movement is just another name for socialism. It is their mantra. Social justice is the mantra of socialism. And it's taking hold in the church as well. And listen, there are pastors who I have in recent years enjoyed their teaching, read some of their books, who are defecting and dropping like flies all around us since this social justice movement and critical race theory made its way into the church. And that's what the church's job is, to preach Christ and Him crucified. We're not here to be social justice warriors. And some of these pastors have bought into this egalitarian thinking that it's not just equal opportunity, it's equal equality of outcome. 
In other words, we need to do the Robin Hood thing and take from the rich and give to the poor so everybody has the same thing. Well, I got news for them who stand behind a pulpit and teach these things. That's not how heaven is structured. Amen. There are rewards according to what you have done on this earth in Christ's name and for the right reason when you get to heaven. Everything that's done of your own motivation and for your own glory, wood, hay, and stubble is burned up. But everything you do that's made of precious stones and jewels is going to survive, though it's tested by fire, and will be rewarded for it. Look at the angelic realm. Are all the angels equal? No, they're not. I love what Gabriel said when he was questioned about what to name his son, uh, or what to name John the Baptist. And Zacharias said, you know, uh, how do I know that, that this is what I'm supposed to do? I love what Gabriel says. He didn't tell him how he's supposed to know. He told him who he was. He said, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of the Most High God. In other words, he's saying, hey, I stand there next to the Father's throne, and you're asking me a question? How can you know? Well, the answer is me, Gabriel. I stand in the presence of the Most High God. Gabriel is obviously a high-ranking angel. There are cherubim, and there are seraphim, seraphim, and then there are archangels, the supposed mighty ones amongst the angels, the head of the principalities and powers as far as rank and file of the angelic realm. Listen, everybody isn't going to get to heaven and have the same thing. Because the angelic structure is not like that, and the world is not set up like that. And yet the church has become a mechanism for Marxism in these last days, and it's all about right now and nothing about then. That's right. It's all about the best life now, egalitarian thinking, equality of outcome, instead of people are going to hell without Jesus, and that's our primary and only mission. And therefore, our mission is to save souls, not change the world. Amen. And social justice has become the new religion of the world. And to equate righting the wrongs of the world with preaching Christ is to make preaching Christ equal to the social justice movement. And it's not. Amen. He who wins souls is wise, is what the proverb says. And we are to be wise in these last days in an age where many are acting as fools. And listen, if you want to see the world change, preach Jesus. Amen. Jesus takes racists and makes them righteous. Amen. Jesus takes bigots and makes them bold for his namesake and word and glory. Amen. He takes liars and makes them proclaimers of truths. Amen. He takes thieves and makes them into productive workers. If you want to see the world change, preach Jesus. Don't bow to the social justice movement. Amen. Jesus is what the world needs, not critical race theory taught in churches because that's what people want. We don't teach what people want. We teach what the Bible says. And if people don't want the Bible, that's their choice that they will later regret. Now, I could be wrong about the letters to the seven churches. But I don't think so. I think it's pretty clear that we are in the Laodicean age. Now, here's why I was trying to drive that home tonight. Here's the point, the major point of our time together. The last letter looks at a lot like what is happening in the church today. 
And yet Jesus says, if anyone opens the door, he'll come in. Is that still true? Oh, yeah. Is that still happening? Yeah. Absolutely. Now, you know what the next thing we read in the book of Revelation is? Right after Jesus says that, says that John says in 4.1, after these things, or the next thing to happen, metatalta is a Greek phrase, after these things, I looked and behold, what was standing open? Where? In heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying what? Come up here. And I will show you the things which must take place after this. Now, one of the most important aspects of the seven letters being prophetic is first this. Seven is the number of completeness. Right? Seven letters. Wouldn't that fit with the whole of church history? The complete history of the church? Now, the reason I want to point that out is because there is no eighth letter. The next thing to happen after the Laodicean age is a call from a voice like a trumpet to come up here. Amen. I think that's pretty exciting. Amen. Now, when the church is largely self-focused and the word is frequently twisted instead of trusted, and when Christianity is viewed on equal footing with other belief systems, it's something uh, sometime during that time that the church age is going to reach its completeness and Jesus is going to say, come up here. Now, why would this be his timing? Because the things we identified tonight are church killers. And they are causing the world's only preserving and purifying influence to be trampled underfoot by culture. It seems pretty clear we're in the Laodicean age. But the invitation to hear his voice and open the door still stands. I believe the end of the church age is at hand. The door's about to close. But let me remind you that the door to heaven will stand open even during the tribulation. Revelation 13, 15 says, He was granted to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And in John saw, thr John thr John <laughs> saw thrones in heaven in Revelation 20, verse 4, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been what? Beheaded. Beheaded because they wouldn't worship the beast. For their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, maybe it's just me, but I would rather be looking forward to the rapture of the church than a guillotine. Yes. Wouldn't you? Yes. I would rather the rapture be my transportation into heaven than having my head lopped off and being uh, transported that way. Now, the end of the church age is upon us. We don't know the day or the hour of the rapture, and anyone who says they do is being foolish because the Bible says no one does. But what we do know is there is a day and hour coming where the Lord's going to meet us in the air with the dead in Christ. And we do know that based on a chronology of church history and revelation, we are at the time of the end. We are living in perilous times where 
much of the church looks just like the world, morally and spiritually, and doesn't put up with sound doctrine, has lost its savor, and has no idea that that's its condition, but thinks they're saved. Our redemption is nigh. Amen? So we finish the seventh letter to the churches in Revelation. Next week, we're going to look at the rapture of the church. The come up here calling. We're going to talk about some of the denials and some of the evidence that makes the rapture clearly a biblical doctrine and will present, I believe, irrefutable proof uh, that the rapture is indeed something we should be looking forward to. After that, we'll look at the time of Jacob's trouble. Then we'll talk about the millennium. Then we'll talk about the great white throne judgment and eternity. And my prayer for all of these messages is that Jesus comes first Amen. to get us Amen. and takes us home. Amen?